Alan Bauer. I'm a student pastor here at Urban Village Church in Andersonville. Um, it's my first time getting up here for you all. Not my first time ever, but for you all, so I'm really excited to be up here. Uh, in case you haven't been here, or you missed a week, or you just need a refresher, we are in our fourth week in our sermon series on finances. Uh, in the first week, we talked about uh, introduction to God's economy and what that looks like. Uh, the second week, we discussed what living simply looks like. How do we live simply? Last week, we looked at managing debt and managing that faithfully uh, to live out God's call in our lives. And today, we're going to be talking about giving to the church's mission. And let's be just straight up and say that this scripture is a weird one, right? Especially for giving to the church. Uh, Jesus doesn't seem too like, keen on actually paying this. So, uh, luckily though, uh, there's lots of people here that are, are helpful, and if you've never preached before and feel like you never could, just know like you're never up here alone. Um, people are always willing to help you work through uh, scripture or whatever, and uh, I just want to lift up that Brittany and Monica and Enoch uh, were all very helpful for me this week uh, as I prepared this sermon. Uh, never up here alone. Uh, do any of you know who Shane Claiborne is? Yes? All right. Many of you still don't. Um, so I'm going to tell you who he is. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Shane is, the, is an author and radical lover of God and people. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to hear him speak uh, on the injustices that go on in our economic system and in the world. And his book, The Irresistible Revolution, is one of my favorites. I highly recommend it. Uh, Shane is uh, a co-founder of the Simple Way community in Philadelphia. Uh, he helped a number of homeless families uh, stand up to the church when the church wanted to kick them out of an abandoned church building. He met and worked alongside Mother Teresa in Calcutta, India, and he was detained by FBI agents at the airport uh, in what he felt was kind of like out of a movie when they pulled out a big file on him all of his life. And the reason he got detained by the FBI is why I want to talk to you about him. A little over 10 years ago, when uh, the United States was getting ready to invade Iraq again, uh, Shane and a group of his friends and other Christians decided they wanted to go and be with the people of Iraq uh, in that time of tribulation, which is not a legal thing to do. The United States government doesn't want Americans going to countries that were invading and being there. But they went, and they went to, uh, I don't remember if it was Lebanon or Jordan or... They went to a, a neighboring country and crossed the border in secret and made their way to Baghdad as the bombs started to fall. Uh, and there they met a large gathering of Christians who came to Baghdad, um, and they wanted to know why the United States wanted to drop bombs on their home. And as their time in the country came to a close and they were headed back to the border in a couple of cars, uh, Shane was in the second car and the lead car was pulling ahead of them, and uh, the driver in Shane's car was getting a little scared that they would be targeted by an American bomb and tried to catch up to the first car, started driving really fast, uh, and then a tire blew out on the car. The car flipped over. In the middle of the desert, uh, most of the people in the car were okay or had minor injuries. Uh, one person, though, was seriously injured and needed to get to a hospital. They were stuck in the middle of the Iraqi desert. Uh, a car pulled up, though. And Shane admits that he had fear that they were going to get kidnapped. Americans in Iraq, right? Not at a good time. They were, he was worried they'd get kidnapped. 
Uh, they didn't speak the language, and they were told to get into this car. But this car took them to the nearest town with a hospital, Retba, and tended uh, to tend to their wounds. But when they got to the hospital, they couldn't get in. No one could get in because this hospital had been hit. Uh, the children's wing of the hospital had been hit by an American bomb shortly before. And so the, the workers at the hospital were making do with tents outside, uh, trying to tend to wounded. And they took in these Americans, took in the one that needed serious help, and tended to them, and then refused any payment, saying that you would have done the same for us. All that was asked of Shane and these Americans was that they remember this, the people of this little town, Ratba, Iraq, and share their story. There's so many fascinating things in this story, but the thing that goes above and beyond anything else for me is that when the world they were living in didn't make sense, when hospitals were getting bombed, when there were fears of being kidnapped, when people's lives were in ruins, it's here that we see such a clear embodiment of God's economy. We live in a world that can frankly seem like it's falling apart. Friday's attack on Paris, the earlier attacks in the week in Baghdad and Beirut and all around the world make it seem like the world is falling apart. In case you missed it, the United States has pledged support of France against terror. And I fear that this will mean, as it often does, more bombs getting dropped. But that's not the way God's economy works. We live in a world that's getting bombed, but God's economy is reflected in those people of Ratba who said, let us take care of you. You owe us nothing, for you are our sisters and our brothers. Just remember us. That is God's economy. That is living simply in the ways of God. I wish that living generosity could be the way our world works, but it doesn't. Someday. Someday it'll work that way. But we're not there yet. God's economy uh, is one that doesn't have a whole lot of use for money. Uh, when we live fully into God's economy, we don't walk into a coffee shop and get asked for, you know, 250 in return uh, for our cup of coffee. God doesn't deny us because we haven't collected enough pieces of metal or paper or numbers in a computer somewhere. Uh, as a church... We don't want money to be a factor in people's lives, let alone one that dominates people's lives or the life of our church. We don't want to be dominated by money. We're not really there yet. In our story from Matthew, Peter is asked if Jesus pays this temple tax. This tax is biblical, but like many things, it's not very clear. In fact, in Jesus' time, there's a debate going on among the Jewish factions about whether this tax is a once-a-year tax a once-in-a-lifetime tax, or a tax that is optional. It's as you feel led to give it. Jesus uh, seems to fall into the group that feels the tax is encouraged but not required. It's as you feel led. It should be uh, out of generosity. The people asking Peter this question are in the once a year. You've got to pay every year. Can't. Jesus wants to live in that world where giving is out of generosity. Um, out of a sense of God's abundance rather than a sense of scarcity. 
But Jesus knows the world isn't living into that economy, and Jesus doesn't like that. He doesn't like the status quo, but Jesus seems to recognize the need to live within the status quo and work within the status quo to bring the change that's needed to the world. Even though we as the church wish we could do away with money, we know we need to exist within the system we have. We need money to do the ministry that we're called to. Now, have any of you heard of Gravity Payments in Seattle? If you're on the small group page on Facebook, uh, Aaron James Brown shared an interview of their CEO on The Daily Show, and we'll watch a segment of that interview in just a minute. Uh, but back in April, CEO and co-founder Dan Price announced that he was going to raise the starting salary at his company, minimum starting salary for everyone, janitors, uh, high-skilled employees, everyone, to $70,000 a year by the end of 2017, starting with an immediate pay increase to $50,000 for all employees who made less than that. He did this after first being called out by an employee for his low wages, and then he did a few experiments, raised the salaries of everyone by 10%. It's a pretty big raise in today's age. 10% increase. Watch as his revenues went up more than 10%. Did it again, another 10% increase. Revenues went up more than 10% again. So, let's do this thing. Set, it, uh, set this goal of a minimum $70,000 salary. And in order to finance this decision, he took out mortgages on both his homes to bring in $3 million into the company, and he lowered his salary from over $1 million to the goal of $70,000. Took a huge pay cut. About three or four months after he announced this increase, Forbes, the New York Times, the Washington Post, along with more obvious websites like Glenn Beck's The Blaze, began to talk about how he had failed utterly and miserably. He had lost revenue, he had lost customers, two of his upper-level employees had quit, and he was struggling to pay the bills. That was at the end of July, early August, those articles came out. Now, just a few months after those articles, Gravity is back in the news, but for a different reason. They are making more money than ever before, have more customers than ever before, and have to look at hiring more people to keep up with the demand. We're going to watch this clip about why uh, Dan Price decided to raise this salary to this minimum 70000 This joke at the end. <laughs> If you remember the first scripture we heard during the series where the boss pays all the day laborers the same amount whether they worked all day or one hour? Um, gravity payments is a real living example of this parable up to and including those who grumble against the boss. Listen to this quote from the New York Times article I mentioned back in July. The new pay scale also helped push Grant Moran, 29, Gravity's web developer, to leave. I had a lot of mixed emotions, he said. His own salary was bumped up to $50,000 from $41,000, got a $9,000 uh, raise. But the policy was nevertheless disconcerting. Now the people who were just clocking in and out were making the same as me, he complained. It shackles high performers to less motivated team members. Sound familiar, right? But it didn't stop there. Businesses stopped using Gravity's services because they didn't like that employees 
would be getting paid so well. In fact, we know that because gravity didn't increase their prices to customers, so nothing changed customer end during this. But people still left the service. They didn't like what he was doing. Friends, when you work within the status quo to change the status quo, people get angry. Capitalism doesn't like God's economy of grace and love. But remember what he said in that. Love is an irrational force that can overwhelm some of these economics and create this new economic reality that we're going to. Preach it, Mr. CEO. We're headed to a reality where money isn't the most important part of our reality or even part of our reality. But until we get there, we're called to work within the economic system we have to mold it into God's economy. We need to do this as individuals, and we need to do this as a church. Now, this church is part of the United Methodist Church, a unique denomination that organizes itself into even larger and expanding communities. And we add a little extra layer to this at Urban Village. So this community here, Andersonville, is our local church, and we are part of the Urban Village system of four churches currently, which is still kind of our local church. We're one church with many sites. Urban Village is uh, part of hundreds of churches that are in the Northern Illinois Annual Conference, which is overseen by Bishop Sally Dick. The Northern Illinois Annual Conference is part of the North Central Jurisdictional Conference, um, which includes the annual conferences of Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, North Dakota, and South Dakota. It's a big area. And this jurisdictional conference is part of the global church, which meets at what's called general conference. We really like conferences in the United Methodist Church. You might notice that there's a few layers in between us at the local level and the general conference level. But we need these layers to really facilitate how we do ministry together. These layers, though, each have a budget. Each layer has its own budget that it has to work in. But unlike the local church, these bigger layers don't have a congregation to pay for that budget. And so our denomination has what we call apportionments which are paid by local churches to support the broader mission of the church. And Urban Village Church lives in a weird place in relation to these apportionments because we are still a young church plant and we are exempt from being required to pay these apportionments. This won't always be the case, though. And so we do pay apportionments, at least in part, voluntarily. For the last two years, we committed to paying $1,200 a year in apportionments. Next year, our goal is to double that number to $2,400. And when I asked Ellen, who's on our finance team, about these numbers, uh, and the rough guess right now is that if we were required to start paying the way other churches pay, we would be asked to pay $80,000 a year. We have a long way to go before we get there as a church. Now, if this is the first time you've heard about apportionments, or don't know how this works, and it sounds scary, or it, sound, it makes you angry that this would be asked of our church. Um, first, let me say you're not alone. There's a lot of people that get upset about this. Many see it as a tax on the local church. However, if we're to make meaningful change in the world, we need apportionments. And apportionments are broken up in a variety of ways, and uh, I was, this was pointed out to me that... Uh, 
an important way at the annual conference level is that uh, Urban Village Church would not exist without apportionments. We were seeded by apportionment monies through the Northern Illinois Annual Conference. We have received as a church, as Urban Village as a whole, around half a million dollars over the course of our five years in apportionment money to get going, to create this community. So we exist because of these apportionments. But I want to take it up to the global level. Uh, there are 13 general agencies that exist at our global level of the church. And they are funded, at least in part, by apportionments. Full disclosure, right off the bat, complete transparency. Uh, I was commissioned as a missionary by Bishop Carcano through the General Board of Global Ministries of the United Methodist Church in 2012, one of these 13 general agencies. And my partner, who's here, Jen, uh, works for the um, General Commission on the Status and Role of Women, another one of these general agencies. So just so we're clear, I do have connections. I don't want to hide that as I talk about why apportionments are important. So I was an employee of a general agency. Um, and let me tell you a little bit about what we did and then about a little bit about different general agencies and what they do. So Global Ministries is about embodying Jesus in the world. I couldn't have been a missionary without apportionments. And missionaries go and stay with people. They invest in communities and help them grow. Also, uh, the Center for Changing Lives here in Chicago got a 10,000 grant. We have someone from the Center for, of Changing, for Changing Lives. They got a $10,000 grant uh, from, from the community developers programs at Global Ministries, uh, which they use for their Just Financials program, which is uh, about using your financials, finances faithfully according to your values. And Jen and Leslie will be hosting uh, these classes uh, come January. So if you want to see something that the general agencies do, you can do that come January. Go check it out. It fits really well with the sermon series, too. Uh, the General Commission on Status and Role of Women studies how the church is welcoming and inclusive to women. They advocate for their full inclusion in the life of the church. And they also are tasked with handling pastoral sexual misconduct cases and caring for the communities, not just holding people accountable, but then ministering to the communities that are impacted by these awful issues. The General Commission on, the, on Religion and Race studies racial inclusion in the church and takes seriously the systems we use and how they might foster racism in the church. And as a global church, and in particular the American portion of our United Methodist Church, we are very white, and we have a long way to go to be racially inclusive. It's important work they do. The Board of Higher Education and Ministry provides loans and scholarships to United Methodist students with scholarships particularly focused in minority communities. The Board of Discipleship provides resources for churches to use uh, for people of all ages, including materials used to teach children. And Monica wanted me to lift that one up in particular. Great resources for kids from the Board of Discipleship. The Board of Church and Society studies injustice in the world and then develops seminars uh, to educate people about these injustices and train them in how to address them in the world. Now these uh, organizations do much more than what I have said about each of them. It's a small sliver of what they do. And I've only named about half of the general agencies. And each of them does something unique and necessary to our mission as a church. 
Uh, we hope for the day when love and respect of neighbor means that we don't need your money anymore. No more need to differentiate ourselves as being a higher earner than someone else. Not, no need to get upset when people are paid well. That is the kingdom of God, the economy of God that is breaking into this world through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to preach good news to the poor. But we're not there yet. We can catch glimpses of this economy when a city and a rock can care for injured Americans while American bombs fall around them. We can be inspired by the living parable that says we are worthy of a life-giving wage, not just a living wage, but a life-giving wage. And we can live within this broken, worldly economic system to say that as a community, we can only have so much impact alone, but as a global church, we can truly transform our reality into the economic reality God wants for us. We are moving toward that reality, and we can catch those glimpses all around us. But we have a long way to go. When Jesus is faced with a church tax, in quotes there, he's disappointed. He says, the children are free from this church tax. And they are free because God's economy has no need for taxes. God's economy is one of abundance, where the hungry have food as the sparrows have food, where the naked are clothed like the lilies of the field in finer silks than any king of earth. God's economy might have no need for taxes, but Jesus knows we're not there yet. We're not required to give to the church's mission because it's some tax. Instead, we are to give to the church's mission because our work isn't done. The hungry are still hungry. The naked stand naked. Brutal violence still harms those close to us and abroad. The church's mission is God's mission, and that mission is pressed upon our hearts. In the season of stewardship campaigns, we remember that we give because we must. Because we are the agents of change in the world, and God's economic promise is that someday we will be without need, and the abundance of God will care for all creation. I personally would love to cut up my credit cards, to empty my bank accounts, and just throw away the cash. But we're not there yet. If I did that, it wouldn't go so well. And so I have to consider how my money can be used to bring about the promised economic reality of God. Giving to the church allows for so much work to be done here and around the world. This is why we give. Because on our own, we are limited in what we can do. But together, we can change the world. Amen.